Welcome to episode 11 of the Science of Feeding the World Remotely. Um, we are joined today by us three, the presenters of the Science of Feeding the World. Um, we are today's guests and uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Woo! Science Woo. remotely. Do you want a, a little theme song? Yeah, yes. give us a theme song, Alex. <laughs> that alex thank you that's a special you're not getting that again <laughs> <laughs> let's hope lockdown doesn't continue <laughs> <laughs> so hello and welcome gary fruin gary uh, fruin welcome to me yes um as we are highly prepared podcast hosts we've got a you know a very long list of questions we could ask you but i thought that the first one i would <laughs> kick off with is so why does natural food matter <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> oh god um why does natural food matter it matters for a couple of reasons um but the reason i would say is that because naturalness is is what matters because it's quite a strong force in in people's minds i think naturalness kind of has a lot of connotations for each of us and i think that matters at the moment where we are with agricultural science and um i think so i think the concept of naturalness is one that we need to talk about so what is the concept of naturalness um i think everybody's going to have their own concept of naturalness but it is something that's been kind of very widely studied there are lots of uh, studies on what naturalness is and um, using kind of lots of different scales and, and different psychological methods to kind of study what that is. And what it really kind of boils down to is this tendency for consumers like you and me to choose products which kind of, um, or you just say, kind of satisfy some kind of intuitive concept of naturalness. Um, mostly that means naturalness as a kind of lack of human influence um you know foods produced without modern technologies um wherein uh, i think consumers view foods that are not produced in this way as having some kind of intrinsic health risk i think that's, so what, we, that's what we we're think, of when we think of naturalness so we're thinking now about something like do you mean the extremes of lab produced lab processed meats or do you is mean this, like processed chicken versus a chicken breast like is what this do the you dreaded mean? gm yeah it could be a bit of both i think those are perhaps more modern versions of, of what that means um but naturalness i think has, has always been a thing you know since kind of the development of organic farming and the organic farmers kind of predecessor this kind of um what was that called? It's a thing by Rudolf Steiner, this very biodynamic farming. These kinds of things have been around for a lot longer than GM has even jargon. been So biodynamic <sighs> farming is this kind of idea of there being a life force of Gaia and we've got to work in harmony with the earth and there are all these spiritual forces that go into farming. And um, don't so, forget burying the, the goat's head or the ewe's exactly. head in it's the, the, the ground. It's the farming version of homeopathy uh, in many Spirituality ways. on the science of feeding the world. So naturalness has certainly come around before GM and, and these sorts of things, and lab-grown meat were even a concept. So the idea of kind of just food that is somehow natural whether that be not having pesticides sprayed on it you know not having synthetic pesticides or even synthetic fertilizer obviously that's a big thing that's been around for 50 60 70 years um in this kind of conversation about what is and isn't natural um so yeah so natural products i guess is where we would would, what we'd start talking about so why do you care about this, Gary? Like, what's your background? Where are you coming to this kind of thing that you're quite passionate about? And I deliberately asked that question just to wind you up. Um, yeah. <laughs> what's your background with uh, this My kind of background is as uh, kind of starting as somebody who was a bit of a, a debunker. You know, there's a kind of a big online movement of debunkers. And I think in around 2005, six, I got into this movement. Started off with debunking kind of medical claims. So things like, homeopathy um you know that we we know for a fact that if a consumer um acts on the preference for naturalness in a medical field they might deny 
uh, they might refuse to have be given a medicine that could save their life and they could therefore die because they're acting on what is a, a scientific misconception. And eventually I kind of started then to look at what happens if we start doing that with the environment? What if we start kind of acting on scientific misconceptions uh, with respect to the environment? Can we cause the same environmental harm that an individual would cause to themselves if they did that with respect to medicine? So you liked going online demonking stuff. (laughs) There are too many monkeys in this thing. Yeah. So you liked going online to debunk things. It's not so much that I like it. It's more that I think it's important to do because obviously there are a lot of hucksters and uh, Monty Banks out there kind of selling very expensive treatments to very desperate people. And, you know, back in, I was one of those people at one point in my life, I was on on chemotherapy and I spent a lot of time trying to cure myself with complete nonsense and uh, ended up um, delaying my treatment for a very, very long time. Um, And that kind of, I I very nearly died as a result of that. And I think that kind of made me realize the, the real risk of scientific misconception. It's the same, you know, you wouldn't want um, aviation engineers being the kinds of people who believed in Aristotelian physics or in the, or believing that the world was flat. If we've got experts believing things that are misconceptions, you don't want them experts designing things that we depend on, such as environmental agricultural systems in this case. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah. so are, you, are, you, are you launching an attack on the Gwyneth Paltrow's of the agricultural world? I am, exactly. And the organic legislation is the big Gwyneth Paltrow in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> so does having that personal motivation change your passion and perspective? I think sometimes we talk a lot about, you know, scientists and science being this rational world. How do you feel about you know, the emotive and the emotional side, the story that you've just told. Yes, I do think that certainly when I was a bit younger doing this, the um, emotional side, uh, the the pathos, as I would call it, is there uh, was a lot stronger. And But I like to think certainly since doing my degree and my master's and coming to Rothamsted, I've, a lot of those views have been tempered a bit and I tend to speak a little less polemically about things uh, and try to try to balance those a little bit uh, and, and make sure, you know, that there's a real through line of logic and reasoning and studies uh, to back a lot of that up. So what do you do at Rothamsted? What's your job? I mean, I uh, know this question, but yes, the world you know out this. there might Actually, not. What different, other, different from kind of both of you, I don't work um, in as a scientist as such. Um, I work in the communications department, which means I get you're a, to... You're a scientist wrangler. A scientist wrangler. But Even it's, it's one of harder things. than the science itself. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> so I have to kind of, so I get to have a lot of fun making videos about other people's science and finding interesting ways to communicate science and tell interesting stories around people's science, which is what I really love doing. So you're a science storyteller. Yeah, in a way. Oh. Yeah. So I hear you were once in a science-themed band. Oh man. Yeah, I didn't I did not expect this to come up on the podcast. Yes, I was in a science-themed band. What? So we used you absolutely- to did believe this would come I did, up in a I podcast. Just, I hadn't thought of it. I, I kind of prepared myself to talk about naturalness and all of these things. This I is like when um, someone wins an award, don't they? And they're like, oh, no, no. <laughs> me? Weird? Let me, me just in a band? Get this... I didn't know you'd heard of it. <laughs> Let me get my piece of paper with my pre-recorded speech. Yeah. So, um, yeah. For about 10 years, yeah, we were in a band and we I had kind of one rule for any band that I joined at that time, which was that we were only allowed to sing about science. Um, you know, they're just, uh, yeah, so that was that. What was, the, what was the band's name? The band's name was Axis Mundi, Latin, you know, bringing back Latin, very fashionable. Ah. <laughs> uh, the music is still all online. If people are uh, interested to find that out, it is... <laughs> kind of system of a down cross with the prodigy um with a Lincoln load of science bio. flown in there so yeah i'll put some links up why not um what was your biggest you know track uh we used to play well we we played a track called science junkie which um was one of my favorites it was a big party um piece uh and that that we will link to that <laughs> <laughs> 
So Gary, you, you've been talking about naturalness. Can you give me some perhaps more concrete examples of what naturalness might be? Uh, yes. Um, so there... Hashtag not scripted. Hashtag not scripted. No, the... Beautiful the, question. Uh, Beautiful pesticides is obviously the big one that comes up because, you know, you can point to... We know that there are pesticides that are both natural and pesticides that are synthetic and that the ones that are synthetic are not always more toxic or more deadly or dangerous than the ones that are natural. That like naturalness or syntheticness tells you absolutely nothing about the safety of those chemicals. And that's just the same for medicine. I don't think many people will be surprised by that. There are many dangerous natural pesticides. Uh, but I think the, the example that I find the most interesting when it comes to this is this idea of um, producing plants that are better able to defend themselves i think that's a, a type of research that you know we've had people like gear come on and talk about um and i think to a lot of people that appeals because it sounds really natural if we can just make the plants defend themselves we won't have to spray them with chemicals but i think when you stop and think what that really means what does it mean for a plant to defend itself it means it produces chemicals endogenously or internally um, and there have been efforts to create uh, plants that defend themselves that have actually produced so such a huge volume of these endogenous chemicals that they're highly toxic to people. Um, so, so that's probably like uh, this this kind of concept of making a plant produce this, these kind of chemicals itself is no different to kind of toxic plants that we know about in terms yeah, of, like you nicotine. know, there are plants that you don't go out to eat and forage. If yes. you, you yeah, know, yeah. plants, plants have this ability. And the thing you're concerned about is if you were to take a plant that we eat, like wheat or carrots or lettuces or whatever something that we would naturally eat and then you make them really good at defending themselves you're actually kind of making them more toxic making right? them more toxic and increasing the kind of pesticide load in your diet by doing that and obviously most of these plants started off quite toxic but we've bred them you know using traditional breeding methods to produce less of those chemicals um but even now you know in the 50s there were cases of lots of people being poisoned by i think it was a case at school about 50 school children hospitalized by a, a potato because it had a lot of solanine in its um, skin um there was there have been cases of people dying from courgettes because they're they're growing courgettes in their allotments and you know over generations they start to mutate and produce more and more of their own natural deadly compounds and those compounds are amped up if you don't use a pesticide then that crop is is kind of under stress then because it's under stress from the pests uh, in its environment and it starts to up its production of those toxins so i think it's just an interesting example there are lots of them but that's one interesting example of the way that naturalness what seems natural and seems like it must be the right way of doing things can actually result in greater harms so i think that's just a, that's a good example wow be careful of potatoes, everyone. Be careful of potatoes, yes, yeah, solanine. But um, also don't be careful of them because the ones we eat now are, I'm sure, very safe to all yes, the potato yeah. growers out there. Yes, oh, sorry, Absolutely. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the, I guess it's more if people are growing their own or, you know, trying to... It's just, yeah. <laughs> don't eat the ones with solanine in them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, and, you know, what is it? Something like 99% of the pesticides in our diet are all natural. Uh, only a very kind of mere 0.1% are not natural. And, you know, I think it's just really important to remember that when we're talking about natural and synthetic chemicals in our diet. Right, live, we here we go for a live rendition of the Rapid Fire Question song. Three, two, one, and... Rapid Fire Questions. Time to ask some questions really, really fast. We'll make that sync up. Yeah, fine. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded terrible via Teams. I bet it did. Gary, thanks for coming in. You're welcome, O. Question. Red or blue? Red. Slipknot or Taylor Swift? Oh, Slipknot. What? Mm. No, Taylor. Oh, you, I can't Tay -tay count till I die. Hannah, Hannah, in. Hannah, whose questions are these? <laughs> I'm going to mute you, Alex. <laughs> Chocolate or cheese? Oh my God, cheese. Editing four hours of scientific lecture down to a bite-sized three-minute tidbit without losing any of the vital information or apologising live in person to the entire Rothamsted staff for controversy surrounding the Twitter account. <laughs> um, the first one. Yeah, editing. I'll never apologise. 
<laughs> That's the slogan for the podcast. We will never yeah. apologise. Yeah. Uh, favourite dinosaur. Can I just point out as well, we've had many tweet, tweets uh, criticising me for not picking up people on the fact that the pterodactyl is not a dinosaur. I want to publicly apologise right now for that. Uh, see, I, I don't. See, I, see, I think a dinosaur is, is what... If I think it's a dinosaur, it's a dinosaur. Right? Words mean what we say they mean. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody says pterodactyl is a dinosaur. Come on. Isn't this, isn't this going back to the sort of pseudoscience you were rallying against before? Yeah, it is, but this one's working in my favour, so... Yeah. <laughs> Favourite dinosaur. <laughs> um, Favourite dinosaur is the pleosaur, which is probably also not a dinosaur. Uh, technically not, I suppose, but... No. We've, we've acknowledged that. Let's move on. Uh, rock or roll... Rock. I'm a climber, so a lot of rocks. Ah. Shoes on or off when you enter the house? Oh, see, I'm guilty of this. Uh, shoes, I tend to leave them on, but I have to take them off. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> yeah. Meeting an incredibly inf- uh, <clears throat> meeting an incredibly famous science communicator and having the privilege of recording a lovely video interview with them or recording an episode of this podcast right now from your home. Come on, this podcast wins every single time. <laughs> thank you thank you and uh how about the last film that made you cry ah oh, the last film that made me cry well, i watched uh amadeus again the other day which i've not watched for quite a long time and that always brings a tear to my eye oh yeah yeah very good film if you've not seen it i've not seen it i'll check it out so mm. alex die me? Flycatcher, beetle bugger. <laughs> no, Bo- I don't know. I Beet- say that. <laughs> Flycatcher, beetle botherer. Yeah, I can't think of any other insects now. Bodes well. Um, pest. I was going to say protector. That's not. Is that? That's not good, is it? Protector of pollinators. That's better. That's better. That oh, we cool. can do. Gary, you can do like a proper voice, can't you? Like a superhero voice. Really, can I? Alex Die, protector of pollinators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but do that for all of them. Give him the okay. give him the introduction. He I deserves. can't remember what the others were. Uh, Flycatcher. Flycatcher. Beetle botherer. <laughs> I thought that was your attempt. Yeah, then yeah. I thought that was pretty poor. And for our next segment, we have Alex Die, Flycatcher, Beetle botherer, pollinator protector extraordinaire. We need to get a drum kit for you, Alex. That drum roll was pathetic. (laughs) That's just my legs. That's not, there's no uh, acoustics to that. So, Alex. Hello. What do you do? Thanks for having me. What do I do? Well, I work as an entomological technician at Rothamsted Research. Entomology, obviously, is the study of insects and insect science. So I work with uh, two teams at Rothamsted Research. I work with the Insect survey. Ooh, which is jargon. The, uh, oh, insect survey. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something about the insect survey. The insect survey is a, a long-term monitoring group for insects. So they have a network of suction traps, which are these big, tall metal sort of towers. They're giant vacuums. They're like upside-down vacuum cleaners, yeah, sucking things out of the sky. They collect those up. Uh, but they also have... Light traps, which are kind of, you know, the, the old meme of moths flying into lamps and things. It's like that. There's a little collection pot underneath to see what moths are flying around. So they have uh, those traps across the country and various places across the world. So it's all about seeing which pests are flying when, so we can monitor uh, when farmers will need to keep an eye on their crop for certain pests, things like wheat aphids or cabbage stem flea beetles or, you know, moths, these sorts of things. But I also work um, with the Integrated Pest Management Team, which I mostly Ooh, work with oilseed. Yeah. Insect, integrated Pest Management. So that's the idea of using less pesticides. So trying to find alternative ways to combat pests or, or to use it alongside pesticides in a way that reduces their amount of them that is used. So using things like uh, naturally occurring predators or parasitoids, things like that, and things that are already there in the world to control things for us, finding a way to help them to help us. So what do you do with the IPM, Integrated Pest Management Team, then? Well, I do a lot of chemical ecology, which is uh, harking back to Cassie's episode, if anyone wants to go and re-listen to that to revise. Uh, there will be a test. Um 
which is sort of collecting chemical volatiles, which is a smell given off by the plant, if you want, uh, which will be in response to a particular pest. And I'm hoping that uh, looking at oilseed rape and collecting the volatiles given off by oilseed by using putting different pests on it, for example, uh, Mises persici, the peach potato aphid, big, big pest in, in the UK, or the cabbage stem flea beetle, or another big pest of oilseed, you could put those on the plants, collect the smell that comes off the plant as those insects eat the plant. Uh, you could then use those chemicals to detect differences. So you might be able to say, oh, that one has this chemical in it, therefore it's an aphid that's on it, that's eating it, therefore we need to combat it this way with this pest or parasitoid or a treatment of some kind. Or you go, oh, it's a beetle, therefore I need this method to get rid of it. Hmm. Have you got any questions, Gary? Because I've got yeah, loads so, more. Well, yeah, I've got, so one of the things I'm really interested in about this whole thing is the, the light trap network and this kind of infrastructure that's in place to to kind of study... Uh, populations of pests and catch them out of the air so pests are kind of all in the air flying around or insects are all flying around everywhere we catch them and then there's this kind of process that starts in of kind of analysis figure out what's in the air figure out what kind of threat it represents and then pass that information to farmers i just want to kind of i like that connection there between doing some kind of science out in the field and then passing that on so that farmers can actually enact or act on that information but i wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about how that actually works so essentially, we have a few light traps on site that collect the moths. Uh, so someone, me, will go around most days and collect what's co- what's captured in those traps, bring those back to the lab, and then they're identified by one of our am elite I, team. Am I correct, sorry, that there are light traps not just on at Rothset, but all around the country? All around. In fact, I've got an actual number. I've, well, no, okay, I've not got an actual number. Around 80 is the closest number I've got. So that's 80 uh, light traps. And then yes. the, the suction giant vacuum traps, there's slightly fewer, right? Yes, I think there's oh, 16 of I thought 16. Suction traps. So. Yes. That's how, if two people thought it, then it's probably right. Or we're both spectacularly um, wrong, you know? Yes, Either in a- which case, I'm really sorry to my boss, James. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, so they're all around the country and people will identify those moths for us. There's some people who um, look after the traps and are quite into the moths. So we have different people who identify them for us and send us the data on what was found in that trap and when. And when you say so, identify, um, is that just kind of on a species level by visual identification or are we doing kind of genes at this point? It's all very, it's classical taxonomy, yes. that's what they okay. call it, which cool. is just um, visi- visible, yeah. the visible yeah, features, but so putting it under a microscope. It's moths, right? And moths particularly, yeah. or some of them are particularly small, and so don't you have to dissect the genitals out? No. There are some very talented entomologists out there. Yes, uh, yeah, so yeah. So for a lot of insects that are, look very um, similar within a genus or something, you will have to uh, dissect out the genitals to be able to tell which species it is, which is very good for the males, but for the females, there's you can't do anything with them. Wow. I did not know that that was how it was done. This has changed my world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, your, your boys played with many a genocide. <laughs> of the moth variety. Of the moth variety, right. Yeah. I'd also say that these moth traps, from what I understand, are really good for us because they, so these traps aren't just, you know, these traps aren't new. They've been out since the late 60s, I think. Oh, something like that. Yeah. So, you know, we have a really long, well, long term for science, um, not long term for the whole planet, but long term for science, understanding of how these moths might be changing and stuff. And that's then useful for kind of if you're an ecologist to study these populations. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the whole network um, in some level has been going on since 1964. So I think it is the longest uh, continuous sampling of insects and the longest study of, uh, you know, that kind of data in the world, really. So even if you don't like having moths flying around your, you know, house at night or if you kind of don't really think insects are that pretty, actually, these kinds of things are really important for us understanding our our kind of landscapes and our countryside and, and what's going on. Mm. Exactly. And if you have it sort of... Um, if you look at the continuous data, so if you look at all the data from 1964 to today, you can look at 
every year when certain species start to appear, when they start to peak, so when they're in their, at their highest numbers and whereabouts in the country they are. And you can then predict in future years when they're going to come out, where they will likely begin their peak, that sort of thing. So you can inform in future, in theory, what's going to happen with that species, when they're going to be a problem and where they're going to be a problem. So I have a question about the kind of elite team of identifiers you were talking about. So I kind of, I think we've discussed this before, not on recording, Alex, not on camera, I was going to say, that doesn't really work for a podcast. Off the record. Off the record. Um, but if we were to put a number on the kind of amount of uh, entomologists or people out there who in the UK could identify a bumblebee to species, generally speaking, how many people do you think there would be who could identify a bumblebee to species? Uh, oh, they're quite a popular insect, so I think maybe a couple of hundred. Could, could competently do any bumblebee? Yeah, so we're talking quite a lot. If we were then to take an aphid, how many people would be competent enough to take that aphid to a species <laughs> level? Yeah, uh, I think you probably get into double figures at most then. I'm, I want to say less than 20 in the Whoa. UK, probably. And how many of think, them do you work with? I think there's 12 of us in the institute. So we've got the lion's share. Uh, and I think... About five of those are considered world experts or should be considered world experts. I mean, they're incredible. I've never seen people quite like them. <clears throat> Shout out to the insect survey team. Right. So what does your day, what does a normal working day for Alex Dye look like? Because we know that Gary spends a lot of time, you know, on Twitter, pretending it's work and creating digital <laughs> content, pretending it's work. <laughs> I'm joking, Gary. Please don't, please don't stop retweeting me. Um, but, but what do you do, Alex? Well, in the morning, I wake up to the sound of the birds out the window. I contemplate my existence for just a few moments. You're not doing well in quarantine lockdown life, are you, Alex? It's been some strange few days. It's really cold in this room as well. We'll put a jumper on. Um, yeah, I might do. Anyway, uh, so normally when I arrive and work at Rothamsted Research, uh, I will go out first thing to collect samples from the traps. So I think some of the traps on site change at 10 o'clock every morning, which means, uh, so it's just a continuous sampling meth uh, method. So every day they change at 10, so I collect them at 10, and therefore it's sort of a day. That day is 10 a.m. 10 a.m. one day to 10 a.m. the next day. That's that day of sampling. Wow. So I collect those, bring those back into the survey, who will then look at look through them identify all the catch all the interesting aphids and insects and then i will probably run around counting aphids on brassica plants for the rest of the day uh putting tubes onto glass bottles to uh, do some air entrainment some chemical ecology uh look around a microscope identifying some insects getting really frustrated about that uh yeah just, i just look around <laughs> with insects and pretend it's a job really perfect yeah. <laughs> Have I deeply offended you by calling you a Twitter time waster, Gary? This one we're going to get it first time, Gary. Your vocals okay. will be warmed up. Yeah. Three, two, one, and. It's time for the rapid fire questions. It's time to ask some questions really, really fast this time for Alex. <laughs> Alex, die. It's time for the question master to become the question answerer. The question E. Um, rapid fire questions with Alex. Bioshock or Borderlands? Oh, man. Uh, Bioshock. Miss Congeniality or Sister Act? <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, oh. I've never seen either of them, but I've recently saved Sister Act to my watch list on Disney+. Plus. Ah, it's it's streaming now. <laughs> Bombus? No. Bombilius oh. Major or Tabanus Bovinus? Ah, that's all. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've, I've, I've never seen Taban Tabanus Bovinus in, in life, so I'd love to see one of those. So I think that's going to be my favourite one. Also, horseflies are really cool and they're very misunderstood creatures, uh, but they do really <laughs> hurt when they bite. So, yeah. Watch out, kids. Twitter or Instagram? Instagram these days, you know? Yellow pan trap or Vortis vacuum sampling? I'm a fan of the yellow pan trap. I like it's colourful, bright. 
long walk on the beach at sunset, or a glass of southeastern Australian Cabernet Sauvignon in front of the fire. <laughs> um, I think he, is that Sauvignon Blanc? No, alas, nah. not. Oh, Cabernet Sauvignon. I think that would have swung it for Alex. Yeah, yeah in hindsight, MCU versus DC. Oh, what the, what the movies? Yeah. Oh, it's Marvel, hands down. <laughs> Correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> DC have had, like, what, two good films at this point? As many as that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Very kind of you. <laughs> oilseed rape versus... Or, sorry, oilseed rape or carrots? Uh, well, I wouldn't eat an oilseed rape, but I would eat a carrot, but I work on oilseed rape, so oilseed rape. Thai food or good Italian? Oh, I do like a bit of Thai food. Amateur entomology or professional entomology? Amateur. That's where the real the real experts are. And the last film that made you cry? I think it was A Monster Calls, you know? I've not seen I that. Got, I got a little choked up at the end of that. I'm not oh, going to spoil yeah. anything, but it's it's a, a very touching, moving film. Ah, check that out. Okay, let's bridge into Hannah. Um, tell us... Hannah McGrath, carrot champion. What What is there to say about Hannah McGrath that hasn't already been said? So thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Science of People World. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Just go check out my Twitter. You'll get some sense of me. Bye. <laughs> um, so, Hannah, when you're not... when I mean, you, you spend a lot of time skipping through carrot films. This is what I get from our conversations. You've used that exact phrase many times. Yeah, um, but I get the sense that amongst the skipping and the glee and the joy, there is a, a scientific meaning behind all of this. Can you tell us a bit about what that is? Yeah. That was somewhat backhanded. I want to just put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I deserved it. I What did I say about Gary messing around on Twitter? You know, come on. Exactly. Um, I suppose I do skip around in carrot fields. Um, and the purpose of that skipping is to try and help growers find alternatives to how they control their insect pests. So at the moment, they're heavily reliant on pesticides. Now, Gary, we can we can in a minute have a, a more in-depth conversation about what pesticides mean in carrots. But to begin with, yeah. the, the kind of the concept is um, I work with a carrot farmer called Ben. In his field, he has a problem. Shout out to Ben. Whoop, whoop, holla. Yeah. Um, in Ben's carrot field, they have a problem from an insect pest like the aphids um, that Alex works on. These aphids transmit viruses which either kill the plants or make the plants very ugly and therefore we don't want to eat them. Um, so we're trying to get rid of these aphids. At the moment, they heavily rely on pesticides. These pesticides unfortunately have problems with resistance so you can spray the pesticide and it doesn't kill the pest which isn't great for profits or the environment um, pesticides can if used incorrectly have impacts on the kind of the jargon is non-target organisms that's basically like i don't know a friendly bumblebee that just happens to be passing in that carrot field when the pesticides mm -hmm. are sprayed um, and then the kind of third reason is there are legal restrictions on what farmers can use so growers are kind of looking for alternatives and one of the things that they can do or one of the things growers like Ben are really interested in is putting flowers into their fields and um, Alex probably knows slightly more about the kind of structures of insect mouth parts than I do but the concept is if you provide flowers you're providing insects with food so things like nectar and pollen um, and we can um, try and sort of match up the different flowers to the different insects that we try to attract um, and we can attract things called beneficial insects into these carrot fields so things like ladybirds or hoverflies or lacewings um, and at different stages of their life cycle these kinds of beneficial insects will go into the crop and eat the pests which hopefully means theoretically um, that we can have fewer pest or lower pest populations in our fields which could hopefully take some of the dependence on pesticides um, away from growers meaning that perhaps the pesticides can last longer or we can use them less often um, or we can try and um, yeah just save them some money I, I know it sounds stupid <laughs> but if we can get now it's really important though, you know, isn't it and it's kind of ties to what alex was talking about with integrated pest management the idea i think how to explain it much more eloquently than i did is, is that if if we're if pesticides are our only 
the only tool that we're using, then we'd get these huge problems like resistance. But yeah. using an integrated method, we get the best of all these worlds and you kind of use multiple different methods. It's harder to evolve resistance yeah. against multiple modes of attack. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really cool. But Hannah, but Hannah, but Hannah. But Alex, but Alex, doing? but Alex. What are you doing to try and help these populations of beneficial insects? So we get more beneficial insects into fields by planting flowers. If any of you have ever seen my Twitter or the video that Gary wonderfully made for me, we have these. Is that hand? No, it's not, is it? That's my Instagram. We're going to have to edit that out. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Um, um, You can find, if you go, actually, just go to the... Science of Feeding the World, SFTW podcast on Twitter or find us on Instagram. Um, I'm sure we can put some photos up on there as well. Um, And we put these beautiful flowers in because, like I said, they can provide the acronym we use because it's science. We love an acronym. The acronym I use um, is SNAP. So shelter, nectar, alternative food and pollen. And these are just flowers or grasses or some kind of... um, vegetation that isn't cropped like uh, again more jargon but some kind of flowering resource that or or plant resource that can help these insects um survive a bit longer that's one of the other things so um things like parasitic wasps or parasitoid wasps which are kind of tiny like it's really hard to express how tiny these wasps are they're not like a wasp that comes and annoys you at a picnic um mm. they're probably like i don't know alex would you say the size of a pen nib like a biro that kind they're of there, aren't they? you know yeah Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, there could be some that are really quite long and thin, but some are very, very, very small. Yeah, very the small. The ones I've seen look more kind of like flying ants and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Huge diversity A in little them. speck on a leaf. But mm. some of these are quite small and they have quite short lifetimes. So if we can provide the food that they need and if we can, ins- ex- uh, if we can extend their lifespan by a week they might live for two weeks if we can expend that extend that for a week you know we can help these populations out and if that can reduce um carrot growers going into their fields making one pesticide spray then to me that's kind of a win excellent one of the things that really interests me about this again is this connection between the science and the farmers and this i think it's been on my mind a bit since we had the episode with akim where he kind of said the technology is there right now to farm, you know, really well and in harmony with the environment and all of this, uh, but it's it's hard to roll these technologies out. I think that's one of the things I really liked about doing, you know, working with you on the video, seeing that you're right out there working directly with farmers and actually the work is being applied in the field. It's, it's yeah. out there right now. Um, I have some reasonably controversial opinions about this i don't think they're that controversial um given that you know i work in the field i think i think i'm allowed to think these thoughts but there's a saying that a kind of conservationist on twitter called rob york um it talks a lot about how um evidence matters but perception is important and i think that actually for me we talk a lot about having research that that works and research that matters, um, and, but in something that's so applied, like kind of agricultural science and the science of feeding the world, if you can't show or if you can't persuade a farmer that what you're doing works in their field, then to me, that science is a failure. And I know that sounds yeah. quite controversial, but I think... Um, so, yeah, there's there's all of this cool science happening at places like Rothamsted or other research institutes or universities um, that's really incredible and potentially can work. But if you can't persuade someone to do it or if you can't listen to their concerns about why it won't work, then to me, that science has completely failed and is a waste of everyone's time, money and effort. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I suppose it's kind of a supply and demand thing as well. If If the interest in that thing, if the need for that thing isn't there as well then what's the point in sort of doing it really? Mm. Yeah. And then there's another argument, kind of like a bit of j- business jargon here, but it's almost about like market creation. If you think you've got a kind of business uh, a science idea that would be really good, how can you then get out to farmers and explain that to them and show them that this is something that they should care about? So you can see that with something like robotics. I don't think farmers are sat there going, I want robotic weeding. But if you can show them that you've got a robotic weeder that works better than the kind of current herbicide might, then, you Mm. know, like... 
I, I think you only get that from those conversations. And I think there's another thing where people think sometimes that because um, I work in a field that it's not science. I get that. Um, and I think other people think that because I work with farmers, um, the science that I do isn't as good as other science, if that kind of makes sense. I kind of know exactly where you're coming from, yeah. Um, this is all based around the perception that science is a a, a man with grey hair with a lab coat in a lab looking at a colourful vial of fluid. Or and a, lab, a pipette. A lab that is at the top of an ivory tower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I think sometimes what people don't realise is that if I go out and do a workshop with farmers or if I go out and just walk around their farm and ask them lots of stupid questions, we have a conversation. And through that conversation, I can kind of realise that there are problems that aren't written about in the literature. Um, so I can read all of the papers that I can find on Google Scholar or wherever. I sometimes, because I work on carrots and it's an old crop, sometimes I literally have had to go to the library to get a paper from like the 1960s that's in a book. Um, hmm. But because, you know, we can read all of this literature, but there are problems that people have in fields that we just don't know about or when you do, yeah have. And it comes into, it connects also to the idea of just scaling up. Just a lot of research just doesn't scale to a field scale. And mm. you've kind of demonstrated that what you're doing does. Uh, but I think a lot of things just don't make it past the extra step of yeah. scaling up. It's just either too cost-worthy, you know, too costly. But that's the thing, or, you know, yeah. we've designed this with the intention of it going into commercial carrot fields from the very beginning. Yeah. So that's great. I'm hopefully, potentially going to get some of these flowering strips into carrot fields um, in the next few weeks that will be kind of Christmas carrots. Um, so yeah. the carrots that we should hopefully get on our Christmas dinner plates. Is it? Is this method Look out for those these festive season. Own- is this exclusively only suited to carrot fields or, you know, farmers are listening and they want to do some of this in their fields, you know, do yeah. they have to be carrot farmers? Do So as a concept, what we, what I'm working on is again, jargon buzzword, uh, jargon buzzer, sorry, um, is conservation biological control. And this is just providing resources to build up populations of beneficial insects that can reduce your pests. So conservation biological control as a concept is something that can work in any crop, whether it's wheat or oilseed rape or potatoes, carrots, lettuce, you know, theoretically it can work. But what we're doing just to kind of, I was talking a little bit about like those feeding mouth parts. Um, That matters because we're trying to attract a bespoke community See, jargon, love it. Um, Trying to attract these kind of bespoke communities of insects. So what, uh, Alex, what kind of things will eat a cabbage stem flea beetle? Oh, uh, big ground beetles, the big shiny black beetles you see running around on the ground. Mm. Uh, Types of wasp. I'm not sure. You've kind of, sorry, you've kind of sprung (laughs) that on me. (laughs) But what, so... But there's other things like... Pigeons, birds, other sort of animals will. Yeah. So birds, okay, so birds might work for something that's reasonably big, like a cabbage stem flea beetle. But the aphid that yeah. I work on is really small. Um, it's like one of the smallest of all of the aphids. So again, something that might the work. Yeah, the willow carrot aphid. Okay. Yeah, Cavariola yeah. agapodi. Cavariola agapodi, yeah. Oh, Sorry. stealing my thunder, pal. You beat me too. Um, you beat me too. But yeah, and so what will work in one crop might not work in the other. It doesn't mean that the concept can't work. It just means that the efforts you've tried haven't quite worked. And I think that's one of that's the good. areas that farmers get a bit like, we tried it and it failed. Actually, what you tried might have been great for carrots or lettuce or potatoes, but it was terrible for courgettes. Um, mm. And so I think there's there's a little bit of a difference in, in what people have yeah. to do. But as a concept, it absolutely can work. Great. Very nice. Very nice indeed. Very nice indeed. I just monologued um, about carrots for a while there, Soz. That is just what we wanted, so don't worry about that. Is there any interesting <laughs> carrot fact that you can share? Uh, What's your favourite carrot fact? Oh, hang on. If you let me just go and check. So according to my favourite website, the British Carrot Growers Association. I'll bookmark it immediately. <laughs> you mean it's not already bookmarked? Um, no. I have mine open at all times just in case I need it. You know, just in case, you know, they update. Um, But we did a pub quiz the other day. Um, Alex is doing a quiz round tonight, aren't you? Don't forget that, Alex. Um, No, I haven't forgotten. The the picture round is ready to go whenever. But the one of the rounds I did was on kind of vegetables and carrots, and it should have been sponsored by this organisation. But a few of my favourite carrot facts is that each year, on average, there are 22 billion carrot seeds sown in the UK. 
I got that one right. 22 billion. Wow. Which to me seems like a lot. And then another two solid facts. The world's longest carrot was grown by Joe Atherin from Mansfield Woodhouse in Nottinghamshire in 2007. Do you want to guess at how long it was, Gary? Oh, I think we, didn't we had this conversation recently? I've forgotten what the answer was. Is it more than a metre? It's 5.84 metres. What the? That's like the size of a great white shark or something. (laughs) (laughs) And then we've got the world's heaviest carrot, which was grown by Peter Glazebrook from Newark, Nottinghamshire in 2004 and weighed, any guesses? Oh, Oh, uh, I don't know. It's going to be heavy. It was 9.07 kilograms. God. Blimey. Yeah. So, what is it about Nottingham? They're both from Nottingham. Is Nottingham a, a carrot centre? Yeah, I think it's got a lot of free draining soil. Good for carrots. That's good for carrots. People just love the carrots in Nottingham. Wow. Jaws would have been a very different film if there was a five metre carrot chase on them, wouldn't it? <laughs> it really would. <laughs> we're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. Wouldn't it be funnier if it was like we're going to need a bigger Would the spiraliser from Jaws to moving mouth carrots? <laughs> Yeah. Right. Next one. A theme tune again, please. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. Ready, Gary? Yeah. Three, two, one, and it's time for the rapid fire questions. Wait, hang on, I screwed it up. Wait. Screwed it up, let's go again. <laughs> Three, two, one, and it's time for the rapid fire questions. It's time to ask some questions really, really fast this time to Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> Pop ballad or thrash metal headbanger? Pop ballad. Stop. This is this is easy, Alex. You need to up your game. Tea or coffee? Tea. Slipknot or Taylor Swift? Oh. Taylor Swift. Oh, Hannah. <laughs> Have you watched her recent documentary, Gary? I've never even seen what she looks like. I don't know who she really is. I think you would enjoy the musical process behind it. I learned a lot about her. I think you'd appreciate okay. it. I'll be sure to bookmark that right next to the Carrot Society. <laughs> <laughs> is it available now on Netflix, Hannah? It is. It is. I want to call it Reputation. Streaming, streaming worldwide, available now. Um, digging holes using a pickaxe in a field to set up a field experiment or counting bees, pollinators and other beneficial insects as they use floral resources. I mean, the latter is less strain on one's body, but the former does allow you to get a lot of aggression out. Um, but for the sake of... <laughs> my instagram the latter because you get pretty photos when you look at bumblebees on flowers Mm. true always nice to see them favorite beyonce song formation that's a good choice actually yeah good choice but Uh, but is it end of the night because if it's end of the night it's halo do you think yeah end of the night is halo crazy in love but crazy in love is where you ramp it up at the beginning isn't it that's start of the night yeah yeah shouldn't be questioning our resident dj Uh, He knew I had so many opinions on pop. (laughs) Inside or outside? Outside. Carrots or courgettes? Carrots. No, to eat courgettes. As you press your brand down the pan. Um, Natural enemies or pest insects? Natural enemies. Classic, big up the natural enemies. I'm confused. I thought that was a trick question then. No, no. You got it. You, well, it's, it's your answer, isn't it? If it's what you believe in your heart, then it's the right answer. <laughs> Welcome to the therapy of feeding the world. <laughs> and finally, what was the last film that made you cry? Now, we all know that I cry at every film known to man. Um, I watched one about torture recently called The Report. That was, oh. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was pretty heavy. That's what happens in lockdown life. I, I go deep. Gary says this. Hannah says that. What does Sammy say? I've really been enjoying this chat, but I think we should move on to the next section now. Thanks. This is the thing explainer. This is our favourite part of the podcast that I like the most and everyone else likes it too. It's great. Uh, but in this episode, because there's three of us, we're going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to describe Gary's words, uh, Gary's work, sorry, using only a the thousand most commonly used English words. Hannah will describe my work using only the 1,000 most commonly used English words. And Gary will describe Hannah's work using only the 1,000 common, most commonly used English words. Great. Fingers crossed, carrot is a commonly used English word. It is not. I'm already looking. <laughs> <laughs>
What's your sentence on Hannah's work? Uh, my sentence on Hannah's work is taking science to the fields to change hearts and minds to benefit the environment. Oh. How are you so good at this? It's almost like you're a professional science communicator <laughs> who tells stories. That was poetic. <laughs> Speaking of a professional science communicator who tells stories, my sentence on Gary is... Ask questions about natural food and educate all about wonderful science. Ah, thanks, Alex. That's very nice. Uh, Hannah, what did you say about me? Now I'm going to... On this question, not in in general. Now I'm going to sound really stupid. (laughs) Playing with little life forms that eat plants for money. (laughs) For money. money. I love that you didn't forget that that's the reason behind all his work. (laughs) I am an insect prostitute. (laughs) Yeah, that's how we should have introduced you. Not some sort of like beetle botherer, <laughs> insect prostitute. Got it. We could do it again. Please don't talk no, that to right. me. Please don't talk that to me. <laughs> You're asking for it now. That has been the first episode of The Remote Science of Feeding the World. We <laughs> hope that we've managed to record this without, I don't know, cropping gary's voice out of an essential bit and alex's burps haven't made it into the edit i hope they have (laughs) if you would like to like subscribe rant to us then you can find us on twitter instagram facebook you can get the podcast on spotify itunes and soundcloud you've literally got no excuse for not not listening in this lockdown yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> here we go then that's it for another episode of the science of feeding the world with me gary Froome, me hannah mcgrath and alex die take it away alex stay safe everyone social distancing.